You know, some people enjoy composing their own music, chord by chord, and others are happiest when they come across that one perfect song. Work is not a lot different than that. Whether you prefer building your own workflow or using a pre-made template, with Monday.com, you and the team can work in a way that's comfortable for everyone. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com and build your own amazing workflow or find an awesome template. No judgment. A science story, huh? And I just thought, well, I had figured it out. It was that golden moment. Because science was on my side. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Story Collider, where we bring you true, personal stories about science. Just a reminder before we get started with today's episode, Story Collider is in the midst of our end-of-the-year fundraising drive. If you, like us, believe in the power these stories have to change our understanding of how science happens and who it belongs to, go to storycollider.org donate and be a part of our story. Today's episode is about adventures in sex education. Our first story is from comedian Kate Willett. It was recorded in the Before Times in May 2019 at our ninth anniversary show at Caveat in New York City. Hello, you guys. Give it up for Aaron and Tracy. Make some noise. So I grew up in a very conservative area north of Los Angeles, kind of a suburban town where we had abstinence education. So pretty regularly, like for every year of high school, they would explain to us that uh, abstinence was the only way to prevent pregnancy. And as a young bisexual person, I knew for sure that that wasn't true. (laughs) This was a big theme. Like the separation between church and state at my high school was absolutely non-existent. We would regularly have speakers come um, to the auditorium and they'd bring in every grade. I remember this one speaker that we had was a 60 year old woman who uh, was waiting for marriage. Um, She had not been married yet and she was still waiting. And this was like part of God's plan for her. Um, I don't know why they thought that this would be inspiring. to a group of high school kids. Like, I think that they probably could have sold us on the idea of waiting maybe one more year, (laughs) but not another 42. So she she was super religious, like straight up talked about Jesus. Um, The mantra that we were supposed to remember when we were holding out for marriage is uh, no ringy, no dingy. It was an equal opportunity thing. Like we also had male speakers come and talk to us about abstinence. Uh, with for the guys, it was if there's wood, it's no good. Um, that was kind of the the abstinence guideline. Um, so in addition to these religious speakers, uh, we they would straight up allow uh, like the church, the local youth group to recruit outside of our school. So there was this organization called Young Life that uh, would have a pastor stand outside the school. And the strategy that they used was that they would target the most popular kids um, so that the the lesser popular, like the kids were not popular, they would uh, follow suit. And I was in the category of 
less popular kids. So I never was targeted. But I just don't know, like, what kind of thought process um, this got approved by. You know, like, there's some, like, middle-aged man standing outside the high school being like, hi, I'd like to talk to the most athletic guys and the hottest girls. And the principal's like, yeah, that sounds like a great plan. <laughs> um, so... <laughs> I didn't think I was ever going to get like real sex education in high school. The way that I got it was by listening to a radio show called Loveline. Um, and the, this was a while ago. So it was Adam Carolla and Dr. Drew. And no one should ever have to learn about sex from Adam Carolla. And I think that some of Dr. Drew's advice like kind of still messed me up to this day. Because like no, no matter what a woman calling in with, he had the same answer always. You know, it would be like, oh, yeah, um, I'm not getting along with my boyfriends. And um, he would be like, oh, you were abused by your father. And, you know, it would be like, uh, I'm allergic to my boyfriend's cat. And he'd be like, oh, it sounds like you were abused by all of your male relatives. And <laughs> so he's like just really hungering for like some accurate information. I tried looking up sex in the encyclopedia. Um, my parents didn't really talk to me about it at all. Um, so I was really stoked when senior year, peak senioritis, I got to take honors anatomy class. And this was going to be an opportunity to get medically accurate sex education. And um, our teacher was Mrs. Bay. And she uh, was like, Thirty, yeah, that but it was like before that was the thing, you know. But she had these like long floral dresses, and she was probably thirty-two, but she definitely looked like she was like sixty. And um, we had a, a section of the course that was devoted to uh, to human reproduction, which is what it was called. And um, the first section of that course was birth control. So. Uh, for, for birth control, pregnancy prevention, she started out with condoms. Okay, so condoms were uh, something that you could use to prevent sperm from entering a woman's body, um, which actually you can use condoms to prevent sperm from entering anything, even a trash can really, you know, but <laughs> it's just kind of a little baggy. But so she <laughs> would, so so she so she would tell us that um, she, would, she was really committed to us not feeling like condoms were any kind of good solution. Um, so she would say that uh, actually, you know, the sperm could swim through the holes in the condoms and still get you pregnant. This immediately brought to mind a few questions. One, what holes in condoms? <laughs> Also, what did Mrs. Bay think that condoms look like? Like, was she confusing them with cheesecloth? I don't know. <laughs> um, yeah, then we talked about hormonal birth control. And um, the message about hormonal birth control is that it is effective. It's almost 99% effective. But a key thing to keep in mind is that it can kill you. Um, there have been... <laughs> at least two instances of this, and we learned about both of them. <laughs> so um, I guess they're, they're, this is sad, but there have been at least two women that have died of blood clots related to hormonal birth control. And um, in the, 
the ones that were projected um, on the screen in our honors anatomy class, they were both very white and very blonde um, in this way that like, if they didn't die of birth control, like they for sure would have died of something peanut related. And <laughs> so it was like, don't use condoms, um, don't use birth control. Um, the only thing to do is to be abstinent. Like you must be abstinent. And this is probably a good, moment for me to tell you that Mrs. Bay was extremely pregnant with her third child. So <laughs> learning about abstinence from Mrs. Bay was a little bit like learning, uh, like going to the gym and having a personal trainer who like chain smoked or something. Like, I know that you're not actually practicing this. I mean, I don't know, who knows? Maybe she was using the condoms with holes in them, but. <laughs> <laughs> then we had STD day and, um, on STD day, she showed us like photos of all of these different um, STDs in action, you know, like just full on uh, pictures of genital warts. And it was like one of those like old school projectors where you put the little like clear plastic on the screen and um, showed pictures of genital warts. And um, she, there was a lot of scaremongering here. It was like, you know. 20, there's 20 million cases of STDs, and she made us feel like it was possible to get all 20 million yourself. <laughs> and also that 50% of these 20 million cases are, uh, are young people, you know, between like 15 and 24, which is probably true, but you know what other demographic of people gets a ton of STDs is old people. Um, there's a lot of senior citizens in centers going at it with each other, not using condoms or possibly using condoms with holes in them. And <laughs> Mrs. Bay did not present this information to us, which is a real bummer because man, that would have been so funny to laugh about with my high school classmates. Um, okay, don't awe me. Seniors getting, senior citizens getting chlamydia from fucking too much is a little funny. Like that's a little. <laughs> Like, I hope that that's my life when I'm a senior citizen. <laughs> I mean, if anything, it makes me feel like maybe there was hope for that six-year-old virgin lady after all. So, you know, Mrs. Bay, she didn't make any, like, uh, she didn't make any pretenses of hiding her religious beliefs. Like, there was a Bible on the table and, um, when it came to other people's beliefs, like there was a, a vegan girl that did not want to dissect a cat um, because she didn't believe in anything that harmed animals in any way. Mrs. Bay was like, there is no place for your beliefs in science class. And <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I, I like I honestly couldn't wait to get out of my hometown. I was really stoked to go to college. Uh, I just applied to the most liberal places that I could possibly think of. So um, I got into UC Berkeley, which I was really stoked about because I heard there that they liked lesbians and labor unions, which I was like really big fan of. And <laughs> I went and uh, my first semester, I signed up for a course called Female Sexuality. And I was expecting to get uh, you know, just finally the information that I had been waiting for. And I definitely got some information. Um, our first day of the class, we went around in a circle of maybe 20 women, and there was one woman there 
bright pink hair. She's like, I came out as queer when I was 14 and I came out as kinky when I was 17. And I was like, damn, holy shit. I'm in college. Also, who are your parents? Do they really need to know that you're kinky? I don't know. Um, yeah. Yeah. Uh, in Honor's Anatomy uh, with Mrs. Bay, I remember that there was a giant debate once that broke out about uh, <laughs> if the clitoris was real. And I was <laughs> on the side of that it was real. And my friend John, who subsequently went on to the military, was adamant that it wasn't. Um, <laughs> so I was like, okay, you know, this will be like a, a good, like, hippie situation. I'll, you know, I'll definitely... I'll definitely learn about it here, but but it wasn't so much that. Like it was it was kind of artsy crafty. Like we had to like make um paintings of our labia and stuff. And uh like I had to sit in front of the mirror of my dorm room, like painting my stuff, and I got a really weird reputation on my dorm floor. I think one woman in the class made the painting with menstrual blood. Um yeah, we also learned a lot in that class about like the etiquette of things like being part of a thruple and you know, it was pretty wild, but and, and you know, I'm not trying to both sides it, but I I still feel like I just it was very difficult even in college to get the pure information. Like I, at this time, I'm just still trying to figure out if the clitoris is real um so that I know whether or not to paint it. And uh when I was like kind of thinking through this story, I went on Mrs. Bay's website and she still has all this information up. She's still teaching the same stuff like many years later. And she says that if you're a former student looking at the website, that you should email her to reach out um, and tell her how your life is going. And I thought about it, but I realized it would be super weird to email your high school anatomy teacher from many years ago and be like, hey, I don't know if you remember me, but I've had sex now, and it went fine. <laughs> All right, thank you so much. That was Kate Willett. Kate is a comedian, actress, and writer whose raunchy feminist storytelling is both smart and relatable. Her 15-minute special premiered on Netflix's comedy lineup in August 2018. She was a correspondent for The Jim Jeffrey Show at Politicon 2017, and she's been featured on Viceland's Flophouse. Her appearance on Comedy Central's This Is Not Happening was on Splitsider's list of 2016's best late-night stand-up sets. Once again, the Story Collider is in the midst of its end-of-the-year fundraising campaign, these past couple of years have been challenging times for Story Collider, but our team has worked really hard because we believe so much in the power that these stories have to change the way that we think about science and to show us the vibrant role that science plays in all of our lives. We are a small nonprofit organization, and we depend on the support of our listeners to continue producing these stories in this podcast. So if you want to support stories like the ones we're sharing today— Go to storyclider.org slash donate and be a part of our story. If there's someone you would like to honor with your donation, you can dedicate it to them as a special gift, and we'll celebrate that on our social media with hashtag MyScienceStory. We're so grateful to everyone who helps make this work possible. 
We're also, for the first time ever, selling merch on our website. So if you would like to buy a Story Collider hoodie, t-shirt, or tote bag, you can find those at storycollider.org store. Your purchases help to support Story Collider's work. Our second story today is from one of our newest producers, Charlie Blake. It was recorded in October at our outdoor show at Public Media Commons in St. Louis, held in partnership with St. Louis Public Radio. So I teach sex ed to middle schoolers at my church. And in every class, we put out this anonymous question box. Every year, the first few weeks of the session, there's always some kid who thinks they're being smart, whose mom is making them come to this class, and why do they even need it anyway? Because they have the internet. (laughs) So this kid thinks they're being clever. They'll put a card into the box that they think is going to make me uncomfortable, such as, explain bukkake. Bukkake is a sexual activity performed in groups in which multiple people ejaculate onto another participant, often onto their face. The participants can be of any gender, and it's really important to remember that if you're practicing this activity responsibly, everyone has enthusiastically consented ahead of time. You can't get pregnant or get anybody pregnant from bukkake, and the risk of STI transmission is actually lower as compared to vaginal or anal intercourse. It can be made even safer for the recipient partner if they wear glasses and avoid getting any ejaculate in their eyes or mouth. Also, bukkake is the name of a Japanese noodle dish in which broth is poured liberally over udon noodles. So this type of explanation generally stuns the 13-year-olds into silence and sets the stage for the type of honest, informative, accurate, and shame-free discussions that we aim to have in the class. But what I notice is that after the first few weeks, after we build up some trust with each other, the cards the kids start putting into the box become pretty personal. And actually, a lot of them aren't even written as questions. So one day I pull this card out of the box and it simply says, all my friends have boyfriends or girlfriends, but I've never even been on a date. See, not a question but I try to respond as best I can during class, offering some general platitudes about how the right time will come along. But the kid's not satisfied. They come up to me in the hallway after class. They want to talk more about it one-on-one. They reiterate, I am 13 and a half years old, and I have never even been kissed. Still, not a question. (laughs) So as I'm standing there in the hallway, puzzling over how to try to help this tender young person, I can't help but be transported back to my very first boyfriend. Now, I seduced my first boyfriend in a really sexy and romantic setting, the Science Olympiad team. This is an after-school program in which high schools compete against each other for the title of Nerdiest Nerds. And this particular year, our task was to build a trebuchet. This is a projectile machine that flings objects really far using a counterweight not to be confused with a catapult that also flings objects really far but uses a spring or elastic band. So a trebuchet, it's a very nuanced machine, many working parts. 
Plenty of time for me to gaze seductively at my crush across the workbench over the next few weeks as we discuss options for lubricating the axle. I also practice using a tape measure with finesse so that I can check the distances traveled by our tennis balls as sexily as possible. Once our machine is complete, there are also long bus rides to the competition venues on which I pretend to forget my headphones so that I can scoot closer to him and share one of his earbuds. So our trebuchet only makes it to the semifinals, but our relationship continues to grow, and in the spring, we decide we're gonna attend prom together. So when the night finally arrives, his clothes fade is fresh, he smells amazing, our outfits are color-coordinated, after a long evening of rubbery chicken and me mostly awkwardly declining to dance because I feel too self-conscious, we find ourselves parked in my car in his grandmother's driveway, ready for our goodnight kiss. At this point, I had invested months into my plan to seduce him with science, honestly worrying a lot more about the distance our hands were resting from each other on the workbench than the distance our tennis balls were traveling. So we're sitting there in my teal Toyota Corolla with its aftermarket spinner hubcaps that at the time I thought were ironically cool. <laughs> and I sit up straight, because in high school I'm obsessed with my posture and convinced of its impact on my attractiveness. I take a deep breath, but my hands still shake a little as I loosen my grip on the steering wheel. What my date does not know at the time is this is not just prom night. This is my first date ever. And this is about to be my very first kiss. So as our faces draw nearer, my nervous excitement is at an all-time high. That feeling, in an instant, turns to abject horror. For as our lips meet, a small strand of snot drips slowly, rolls down my lip directly into our kiss. To this day, I do not know whether he refused to acknowledge this salty, unwelcome addition to our smooch, because maybe he knew it was simply too mortifying to name, or actually, maybe he didn't even know what happened, but either way, I knew. So he gets out of the car, and I flee the scene as fast as I can, driving to my friend's house in tears, where I spend the rest of the evening sobbing under her ping-pong table at the after-party sleepover. I am so utterly inconsolable that my friend's very Christian mother thinks I am definitely on drugs. <laughs> no, Mrs. Judy, if you're listening, I wasn't high. I was just struggling under the crushing weight of existential embarrassment like only a teenager can. Fortunately, I didn't literally die under that ping pong table. My boyfriend and I dated for a year after that, never talked about the first kiss. Eventually, I made it to Quaker Liberal Arts College. For the first time, I was in an environment where people not only talked about sex, they talked about the politics of sex. In fact, there was a dedicated space called the Women's Center. That's women with a Y. It was at the Women with a Y Center uh, that I actually realized I wasn't one. 
I started to put some words to some feelings I'd been having for a while. At the time, I naively thought I had invented the word genderqueer myself before discovering the long and vast history of transgender people around the world. So in class, I delve into the history and psychology of gender as a social construction outside class at a weekend retreat on campus. I listened to a guest speaker tell a very captivating story about the kinky aesthetics of kitchen spatulas. On the third floor of the college library with its dingy orange carpet, I pull an anthology of queer fiction from the shelves that when I open the pages, confirms the existence of an entire world I hadn't even known I was searching for. By the end of college, I've not just self-actualized, I am organizing a feminist art show featuring a very memorable burlesque dancer who describes the way she worked her way through graduate school as a sex worker. Somewhere between the pasties and the nude plaster of Paris body casting party I attend, I decide I too want to go to graduate school, and eventually I want to get my PhD in ecology. It's around this time that I also become involved in the Unitarian Universalist Church, all of which leads me to that hallway where this tender young human stands before me, reaching out for validation in a way they can barely articulate. So as I stand here in this tiled hallway watching the Unitarians mill about eating their vegan church donuts, <laughs> I finally realize what this kid is actually asking. Honestly, what about 90% of the cards in the question box have asked me over the years? What they really want to know is, am I normal? Is this okay? Is it okay to be like me? That's what they want and need to hear the answer to. It's the question I wish I didn't have to wait until college to figure out. So I turn to this kid and I say, want to know how old I was when I had my first kiss? 17. Really? The kid says, looking astonished and relieved. Really? I was 13 and a half years old and completely unkissed. And I lived, I tell them. And now I explain Bukaki to 13-year-olds without even a smirk. That was Charlie Blake. Charlie is an interdisciplinary scientist currently teaching at Webster University and Southern Illinois University Edwardsville. Their research is focused on a variety of topics, from the behavioral ecology of fish to environmental justice and community-based research through citizen science. They're also an artist, a singer, and a banjo player, and the founder of a nonprofit working on transgender housing instability. The Story Collider is so grateful to Kate and Charlie for sharing their stories with us. The Story Collider is also very grateful for the support of Science Sandbox, a Simons Foundation initiative dedicated to engaging everyone with the process of science. This podcast is produced by me, Aaron Barker, Executive Director and Co-Founder of The Story Collider, with assistance from Story Collider's Program Director, Nissa Greenberg, and Senior Podcast Editor, Jun Chen. Special thanks goes out to Story Collider's board and the rest of our staff, including Managing Director Anne-Marie Lonsdale, Science Advisory Fellow Edith Gonzalez, Operations Manager Lindsay Cooper, Marketing Manager Nikisha Roberts-Washington, and our intern Jamie Banks, without whom none of this would be possible.
The stories featured in today's episode were from shows produced by me, Aaron Barker, and Paula Croxon, and by Sam Lyons and Charlie Blake, with assistance from Nissa Greenberg. Our theme music is by Ghost. We'll be back next week with more stories live recorded at our shows. Until then, thanks for listening. Ohio, ready for some quick mental health facts? Let's go. Nearly 2 million Ohioans live with a mental health condition. In the U.S., more than 50% of people will be diagnosed with a mental illness in their lifetime. Depression is a leading cause of disability worldwide. So why are some of us still stigmatizing people living with a mental health condition when we know all of this? Let's listen to the facts and beat the stigma. Ohio, challenge what you know about mental health at beatthestigma.org.